Hello out there and welcome back. I'm grateful that you're joining me to learn a bit of science and make some healthy choices. My guest today is Dr. Shazma Methani. She's an emergency medicine physician in Edmonton, Canada, and assistant clinical professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Alberta. In addition to treating patients on the front lines, Dr. Methani is very active on social media, where she provides practical advice on a wide range of health topics. In our conversation, Dr. Methani shares tips for staying out of the ER and insights into what's going on on the other side of that difficult waiting room. You just might find yourself feeling a little more understanding the next time you're stuck there for hours. Perhaps my favorite part of our conversation is when we join forces in tackling a mutual pet peeve, the myth that natural is always good and synthetic is always bad. As I'm fond of saying, the dose makes the poison, and Dr. Mithani is very much an ally in trumpeting this important fundamental concept. So thank you again for being here and choosing science as your guide. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mathani. Thanks for taking the time to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. Now, I want to get started by hearing a bit about your journey and how you came to be so active with science communication, because it's not something that's super common for a person in emergency medicine. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so it's definitely been a journey. I really started out at the beginning of the pandemic. So Twitter seemed to be a place in particular where there were a lot of scientific voices, a lot of medical voices that were there, not only trying to educate each other about this novel virus that was spreading around the world, but also to try to help educate the public, reassure the public, give them guidance on how best to protect themselves and their families. And so I had had a Twitter account for over a decade now, but I was not at all active on it. And when things kind of started back in the spring of 2020, I started to get more active on it. And really, first, as a place for me to go and find information, it was a very scary time, in particular as an emergency physician, because all we had on the news was the information coming out of New York and Italy and just hearing about these frontline physicians who were lacking PPE, who were getting exposed to this virus and were dying, were having bad outcomes. And it was very scary as someone on the front line to hear this. And really, it was the only information that we had in terms of this coronavirus. And so I myself first got out there to try to get more information for me to help learn how to protect myself, to protect my family. And then from there, it actually quickly evolved into a way to reach the public to get appropriate health information out to them on how to make sure that you're wearing the right PPE and the right mask to even just simple things like hand washing and staying home when you're sick and keeping space from people. And so it became this way for me to get out there and advocate for just general health information for the public. And then it grew from there as the pandemic continued to go beyond what I think any of us could have imagined it would turn into. I'm curious to hear more about a day in the life of the kinds of things that you see and allow you to apply your knowledge and learn from the experiences that you have on the job. So I would say that there is no typical day in the life for an emergency (laughs) physician in particular. I mean, even the type of shift that I have, the time of day that I start varies within a given week. And so it could be anywhere from starting as early as 6am to starting as late as midnight. That even is atypical, right? There's no particular pattern to that. And then of course, the biggest thing about the emergency department is how unpredictable it is. Really don't know what's going to come in the doors, whether it's an ambulance that's bringing a patient in or whether it's a patient presenting themselves. We just don't know what's going to come in. And so a lot of 
the so-called typical day in the emergency department is really just kind of expecting the unexpected and being prepared for that and kind of being ready as a team and making sure that we're flowing well as a team to make sure that we're seeing patients in the appropriate priority. Of course, seeing the sickest patients first. And then a lot of it is really just juggling. On any given shift, I could have seen 20 to 30 patients depending on the shift and multiple of those patients being kind of managed simultaneously. And so making sure that I'm being as efficient as possible, as careful as possible to keep everybody safe and keep everybody well cared for and then decide who can go home and who needs to have further treatment or investigations. All those things are being juggled all at the same time within a given shift. I want to start getting into some practical advice for people that are navigating various phases of this experience on the other side that you're not on as the patient, the patient experience. Step one is how do I decide whether or not this particular episode warrants a visit to the ER? And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's lots of different decision trees depending on the context, but maybe can you just speak about that? Like how some of your own stories of how you approach that and some of the common situations. Sometimes it's very challenging, right? Because as me as an individual, I'm an expert in health. And so something that might seem like an easy decision for me is a very challenging and complex decision for somebody that is not an expert in health. And so, I mean, of course, preventative care is always the most important thing. And so what I always recommend to people is to have a primary care provider. So whether that's a pediatrician or a family doctor for your child or for adults, a family doctor, and that often should be the first point of contact into the medical system. So if you're in a situation where you feel unwell, but still, you know, are able to walk and talk, breathe normally, don't have any dizziness or lightheadedness, don't have any chest pain and are generally well, but feeling a little bit off, the first point of contact should always be your family doctor or something like HealthLink or 811 in Alberta. That should always kind of ideally be the first point of contact for everybody. Of course, right now we're in a situation where not everybody has a primary care provider, so it makes things a little bit more challenging. So 811 is a good resource for that to check in with a nurse, and there are physicians there as well, to help decide where the best place is for patients to go when they're not feeling well. 811, that's pan-Canadian, is that right? I mean, I've used it, I'm in BC. Oh, then yeah, then I guess it is pan-Canadian. 811 is a good point of contact for people who don't have a primary care provider. The other thing from having, you know, a family doctor or pediatrician is that level of preventative care. So having your annual health checkup to make sure that there's nothing that comes up that's going to be a concern that would need you to use the hospital system or the acute care system. In patients that have things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, keeping those under control to make sure you don't get a stroke or a heart attack, keeping your diabetes under control to make sure you don't have any complications to that. If you're someone that has COPD, talking to your family doctor about smoking cessation and just general care of your COPD to make sure that's under control to, again, make sure you don't have to come into the hospital system. And so that level of preventative care really just illustrates how important family doctors are. And they really are foundational to our healthcare system because they will keep you healthy. They will keep you out of the hospital and keep you out of the emergency departments. And so that should be the first step for everybody. And again, you know, the goal for our healthcare system broadly should be that every single Canadian has access to a primary care provider. It's a challenge and it's certainly a concern from all levels and particularly among my colleagues in the emergency department because we see firsthand the people that fall through the cracks and don't have access to primary care and what that means for patients and how they present to the emergency department. Beyond kind of having that primary and preventative care, my advice is always if you're ever worried, call 811, call 911, or just come to the emergency department because sometimes it's hard to get that level of nuance in terms of who does need emergency care and who doesn't. And if you don't feel like you have access or aren't getting the answers 
that you're wanting or needing or something still doesn't feel right, the emergency department is always open and always available to see patients. So let's say that you've decided that going to the ER is the right decision. Can you shed some light on what's going on on both sides of the waiting room? Maybe starting with the waiting room. Any tips for navigating that situation and understanding how priority decisions are made and why it often takes so long to get seen? So when you come into the ER, the first thing you do is you're going to get checked in at triage. So there will be a highly trained nurse there. So having a nurse at triage, that's literally the highest level of training you can get in the emergency department. And so they are the most apt in terms of recognizing who's sick and who's not sick. And so they get your story, like a brief story, and they get a set of vital signs. And based on those two things, they assign you a triage score. So it's anywhere from one to five. Five being like very not sick, things like maybe you sprained an ankle or you need a prescription refill versus one, which is someone who like needs immediate attention. So someone who might have a cardiac arrest, for example. And so it's anywhere in between that spectrum, you're going to get that triage score assigned. And so then based on how sick you are, determines how long you're going to wait. It's not first come, first serve. And so of course, we always serve the sickest people first. And so that might mean that there's a bit of a wait in the waiting room for you, depending on what your triage score is. If you've been waiting there for some time, there are kind of protocols in terms of the triage nurses checking back in on you, rechecking your vitals to kind of make sure you're still doing okay. But what I would encourage people to do, because sometimes waiting rooms can be very busy and things can get missed just because of the sheer volume of patients, is if you feel like your condition is getting worse or if your family member is getting worse or something has changed, don't be afraid to go back up to the triage desk and let that triage nurse know that something has changed because that very well could change what the priority in seeing you is going to be. That's good to know because you can always see they're so busy, you hate to bother them, but it is appropriate in some cases to do that. Yeah. And you know, also that they do want to be bothered too. I mean, it's really challenging and quite unfair, I would say, for three or four triage nurses to sometimes look after a waiting room of 40 undifferentiated patients. And so they want to hear from you and they want to know if people are getting sicker just so that they can do their jobs as effectively as possible. So what about on the other side? So they bring you in and they give you a room and then Sometimes I feel like, oh, yay, we're home free. And then we sit in that other room waiting for some time. So what's going on behind the scenes there? Yeah, so there is a lot going on. So once you get into a stretcher, so you're assigned a room, there's a nurse that's assigned to you. And so the nurse will come and see you. They'll ask you a bit more of an in-depth story, get some repeat vital signs, because that's kind of a piece of information that we want frequently, just in case things are changing. There might be a nursing initiated protocol where they might draw some blood work on you or give you some medication. Or if there isn't in your specific circumstance, then you wait for the doctor to see you. And the important thing to remember, and it is frustrating to have to wait again once you get into the room, is that as a physician, I'm seeing sometimes 15 or 20 people simultaneously. And so I'm also kind of internally prioritizing people in terms of who to see in what order. And so when it's your turn, you'll be seen by myself or one of my colleagues. And then we do an even more in-depth story. And so one of the things that I often hear is, well, I've given my story so many times, and that can definitely be frustrating. But it's often asked in different ways and we're trying to get different pieces of information. So the triage nurse is just trying to get the few different things that are going to decide how sick you are. And then the bedside nurse is going to get information that's going to help with their care. And then me as a physician, I'm going to get sometimes different nuances of the information that's going to help me decide what investigations to get. So that is why you have to tell your story so many times. And so once I get a story, I'm going to do a physical exam and then decide what investigations to do. So that could include blood work. It could include a heart tracing or an ECG. It could include imaging, so like an x-ray or an ultrasound or a CT scan. And then those things take time as well, because remember, there can be upwards of 60 or 70 people in the entire emergency department. And so 
there is a priority in terms of how people get their blood test done or their imaging done. And so there is a weight with that as well. And then once those tests get done, there is a weight in terms of getting the results back. And so again, you know, blood work will get sent to the lab and they're doing blood work for the entire hospital, right? So hundreds and sometimes thousands of patients. And so this is something that again, gets in the queue and ER blood work is always prioritized, but it does take time for the machines to run. It does take time for the radiologist to look at the images and give us a report back. And so that's why there's all these multiple pieces of waiting, even once you're inside the room. And then kind of the final step of that is, of course, if you're able to be discharged, then that kind of happens as soon as the information is all resulted. But if there is a reason for you to get admitted, then there's that extra step of then waiting for the consultant to, again, prioritize all of their consults that are waiting to decide who's going to be seen in what order. And then um, the admission process takes place after that. As you're talking, it's bringing me back to my younger days when I was trying waitressing not very successfully. And it's one of those things where once you've been on the other side, you have such an appreciation and become a much more patient customer in a restaurant when you can see all the juggling acts that's going on, the challenge it is to deal with so many people at once. Yeah. And you know, interestingly, I just had a conversation with a medical student a few weeks ago who used to work in the service industry. And he was making that same parallel. It was very interesting to hear that from him because he said the same thing that there are so many parallels between emergency medicine in particular and the service industry. So it was kind of neat. It's neat to hear a second person see that link too. What are some of the skills that you practice to make you successful in the ER and that maybe you can translate into your daily life as well? I mean, the ER is a very chaotic environment sometimes, but the most challenging thing in that environment is just that you never know what's going to walk in the door. And from a medicine standpoint, everyone is quite undifferentiated or you really have to assume everyone is undifferentiated because even someone with a simple sore throat, for example, could have something life-threatening. And if you're not asking the right questions or thinking about things more broadly, you can get yourself into trouble. And so it is a challenging environment because of those things. And then again, there's constant interruptions of trying to juggle. Sometimes if I have 15 or 20 patients at the same time, trying to kind of juggle those people, the nurses are coming to me to let me know about a change in a patient status, that sort of thing. Then there might be an overhead page that there's a really sick patient coming into a recess room. So really like lots of different pieces of information going on at the same time. And so it's important for me to make sure I carve out my moments within that time to like really just make sure that I'm, I call it running my list. And so what I mean by that is making sure I'm kind of checking in mentally, like looking at the screen and checking in mentally with my patients and making sure that there's nothing outstanding or kind of I know what my general plan is with each patient. And so lots of checking in and keeping lists. And that's something that I definitely do in my everyday life as well. Lots of to-do lists, lots of different ongoing check-ins with my to-do list to make sure that, you know, even if I have 10 or 15 minutes, can I tackle something and get that done just to kind of be more efficient? And I think what you're speaking to with the to-do list is also taking a step back from the chaos sometimes to see if you're putting your energy in the right place. And that's something that I know I need to work on. And I see my son, who's 11, will definitely need to work on that as he learns to balance different school commitments, for example. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, I think it's something that we try to keep balancing and readjusting into adulthood and trying to figure out what works the most efficiently for us. And in particular, as a busy professional, efficiency is going to be important. I don't want to always have my phone out with me when I'm with my family, for example, right? And so really trying to prioritize different moments and making sure that I'm trying to be as efficient as possible. And of course, the emergency department with wait times being so high, it's always about efficiency, right? Like how quickly can we effectively and appropriately and safely manage patients so that people aren't waiting around to be discharged longer than they should be 
or people aren't waiting around to be admitted longer than they should be just so that we can kind of keep moving patients through because there are lots of people waiting. 100% that efficiency is one of the core skills of life that everyone needs these days with so many things on the go. The fact that you see so many people with injuries impacts the way you think about risk tolerance and the activities in your family. I was skiing this weekend, for example, with a woman who works with people who are paralyzed and she was a super anxious skier with her kids, even though she was very competent. She was just very risk averse with her kids. So how does that show up for you? And what advice do you have for others in navigating something that's fun, but also there's some chance of a serious injury? One thing I wanted to go back to first, just with the eMERGE part and kind of how I apply things to my life, is when there's a really sick patient, when there's someone who has a cardiac arrest, when there's someone who is very sick, where there's often the tendency or risk of things getting very chaotic in a room when there's a very sick patient and like lots of different people in the room. In situations like that, it's, you know, I hate to use the word controlled chaos because it's like such a cliche, but it kind of almost has to be that way, right? And as the leader in the room, as the physician, I find that it's really important to maintain, like, even though I might be concerned or anxious about a patient in my mind or in my heart, even, I always have to remember to like be as calm as possible because I don't want my head to be clouded by the anxiety. A lot of medicine in those six situations is quite algorithmic and you want to be able to really just think through things in, in a clear and stepwise fashion. But beyond that, everybody in the room is looking to you. And if you're anxious, everybody else is going to be anxious too. And so I find in those situations, it's really important to just be able to have control of the room and show that you're the leader and show that you're confident, but that you're also confident in the other people around you. And I would say that that's very applicable even to like any situation where leadership is involved, both inside and outside of medicine and both inside and outside of clinical medicine too. Even me, when I look to my leaders, right, I'm looking to have confidence in them and I'm looking for reassurance even when times are really challenging. And I think that that's definitely something that is broadly applicable outside of being a doctor too. Yeah, we all have those more minor crises, like it's a sudden flat tire or something in your life when the family's all there and you as a parent are playing a really important role in the tone that you set and the way you respond. Absolutely. It's interesting. It's definitely easier to do at work than it is to do at home because things almost are a little bit more predictable in medicine because like I said, in the very sick patients, things are algorithmic and you really try to approach things in a stepwise fashion. Then you do have to think outside the box when things don't follow the way that you expect them to, but Nothing gets on my nerves the way a toddler's whining does. Oh, absolutely. They won't put their shoe on because the sock has a seam in it or something like that. It can send the calmest person over the edge. Mm -hmm. The question I was asking before you added that insight about leadership was how you navigate the balance of enjoying activities, but being cognizant that there are risks there. So advice on just how that shows up for you and advice to others. To be honest, as an emergency physician who also does pediatrics, I find it a really challenging balance. And I often will like look to my husband to kind of just give me that extra balance because I am so biased in what I see. I'm always going to see the most injured kids and the most injured adults. However, that being said, there are things that are kind of like hard stop nose for me because of the disproportionate number of injuries that I see with some of these things, right? And so that includes things like being on an ATV. That's a no-go for my family and I. And like, thankfully, my kids, it's not something that they're showing any interest in or anything like that. Would a motorcycle be in that category too? Yes, it would be. I will mention little things to my now seven-year-old daughter. 
now she'll like see a motorcycle driving down the road being like, mama, that's unsafe. Like she's getting some of it, right? Or like she's the helmet police, really she is, which is so great, right? Because helmets, you are not allowed to be on anything with wheels that moves where you're not wearing a helmet. So that includes things like bicycles, but even things like scooters, skiing and snowboarding, sure. But like people often forget to wear helmets when they're tobogganing or sledding too, or back riding, right? Like all these things where I've seen terrible head injuries and brain injuries from this, right? And so because we're so diligent about that, like it's now our kids that are reminding us, like, make sure you put your helmet on, which is great. You know, I want to teach them those important preventative measures. But admittedly, like it is challenging to kind of find that balance. Like when I'm skiing with my kids, my daughter is already a better skier than I am. Seeing her weave through the trees and stuff, you have to let them have a long leash. And it's my own kind of internal anxieties that I have to just like slowly let go. And I become more confident as I see them be more confident and skillful in the things that they're doing. So it's an ongoing battle and an ongoing balance for sure. As much as I would love to just bubble wrap them, it's like not practical or fair or right to do that. Would you put seatbelts in the same category as uh, absolute 100%? Absolute 100% seatbelts, making sure that you have like the appropriate car seat booster seat and remember that it's based on weight and height and more so on weight in terms of moving up to the next category. So yeah, that's a definite always 100%. And again, my daughter is always reminding me to make sure that they're snug in their car seats and she lets me know when she clicks in with her booster seat, like puts the seatbelt on. And so it's a lot of constant feedback back and forth and just education with my kids back and forth too. I'm kind of a seatbelt police person, but are there actually people who don't wear seatbelts? This maybe sounds like a naive question, but I mean, do you actually see accidents from not wearing them or is it improper use or what, like, what do you see? Worst injuries that I've seen are when people are not belted. And yes, so people still don't wear seatbelts and at city speeds, we're not going to see that bad of injuries. But think back to physics, right? Like with inertia and when your body keeps moving, if the car was moving fast, that's bad. And so like anytime someone is ejected out of a vehicle through a windshield and thrown several meters down a highway because they're going high speeds, you no longer have the metal of the vehicle protecting you because you didn't have the seatbelt to keep you inside the metal of the vehicle, right? And it's just so, so important. Some of the worst injuries that I see are because of highway speed collisions where people are not wearing seatbelts. I actually lost a friend in my graduate years who had an accident and don't believe she's wearing a seatbelt and went through a windshield. Yeah, it's scary. Sorry to hear that. And like the one thing that just thinking about when my kids get older is the seatbelt and the impaired driving thing. It's something that like weighs on my mind so much. And I just want to always kind of create a safe space for them to let them know, like you can call me at three in the morning, no questions asked. We won't even have to talk about it. Just call me and I will come get you from wherever you are. Yeah. Just so that there's never even the thought crossing their mind that they should ever get into a vehicle with someone who's impaired. Because like that is another thing that I've seen just devastating outcomes from. It's scary as your kids get older and start having that more autonomy and more decision making. And you put more trust in them, but you want to be able to trust that they're going to make the decisions that you want them to make. And that's Mm -hmm. a really hard thing as a parent. I would want to make the same offer to my kids. And I think now we have apps like Uber, that's something like that. If you could just put that in your kid's phone and be like, not even going to check the bill, just use it if you have to. Just use it, exactly. Another topic I really like to talk about with all my guests is myths and misinformation. So one of the posts that I found of yours that I really liked was about the topic of natural versus synthetic and this sort of false dichotomy that there's this alignment that natural equals good and healthy and synthetic equals bad. So can you speak to why that's a topic that fires you up? Maybe summarize some of the messages. As you said, there is this very broad misconception that natural means not only good, but safe. 
And that's where things become really dangerous because there could be some natural things that you're taking that have no effect at all, which is fine. It's a waste of money, but it's not going to have any negative consequences on your health. You're talking about like supplements, for example. Yeah, like any sort of water-soluble vitamins that you're just going to pee out. The thing that I love hearing lots of people say is that it just makes really expensive pee (laughs) because you're giving your body something that it doesn't need anything extra of. You're spending a lot of money on it. It's probably not going to harm your body, but it's a waste. And it almost gives you then a false sense of security too, right? And so that's one way that things potentially become dangerous because if you're using supplements or quote-unquote natural products, in place of evidence-based medicine to treat things like cancers or serious medical conditions, even though there's no direct harm from the supplement or the natural product on you, there is harm in not using the evidence-based medicine to prevent or cure your disease progression. That's one way that it becomes dangerous. And I've seen that so many times. And admittedly, a cancer diagnosis is one of the scariest things in someone's lives. And it makes them very vulnerable. And the thing that's very upsetting to me is that There are some practitioners and companies that prey on that vulnerability to give people false hope and take their money, if I'm being honest. And so those sorts of things are really quite heartbreaking because you can't blame the patient in those situations. I blame the people that are giving them the medications and giving them that false hope and preying on their vulnerability. So that's certainly one way that it's dangerous. Just to add to what we talked about, about supplements often not being effective, I think a lot of people aren't aware of the lack of regulation there. If you're comparing a drug you can prescribe to a supplement, can you speak to that? Absolutely. So we have to remember that almost all supplements are not approved by the FDA or Health Canada, meaning that there is no regulation in the dose that you're getting, in the formulation of the supplement that you're getting. Often, because if they're not approved, that means that there are no rigorous clinical trials that have proven their efficacy for whatever particular ailment or disease that you have. And so there's no reporting of side effects that's regulated either or adverse outcomes or any true evidence for the effectiveness of that supplement for whatever it's claiming to be effective for. So that's always a caveat that is important to keep in mind. Now, I mean, there are some vitamins that people need. Vitamin D is a good example of that. So in babies who are not breastfed after the age of six months old, vitamin D, really important for their development and bone health. In older individuals over the age of 65, vitamin D and calcium C, really important for bone health, right? So there are situations where the evidence shows some vitamins and supplements are important. Folic acid is another good example in people who are trying to conceive and then people who are pregnant. Folic acid has very good evidence for the prevention of neural tube defects. And because it is FDA and Health Canada approved, that particular supplement is regulated. But majority or not, right? Unless there is a specific approved reason for them to be taken that shows evidence behind it. Most of them don't have any regulation, which can be very concerning too. You want to know what you're putting into your body. The one thing that I've learned is is important to point out. I think when looking at, for example, menopausal hormone therapy, something I've been researching, the distinction between compounded and regulated. So we're talking about both have there been trials to prove it works, but also is the manufacturing and the purity regulated so that you know exactly what's in there. Both of those are things that you can count on when you're getting a regulated prescription FDA Health Canada approved, but they're not things you can count on on the supplement route in general. Exactly. And when you look at things like hormones in particular, so hormone replacement therapy for menopause, so things like estrogen, for example, the dose is very important because there are significant side effects from using hormone replacement therapy, which your physician would discuss with you, and it would be a risk balance assessment and informed consent on that. 
but there are risks with it, right? And so if you don't know what dose you're getting, you're certainly potentially putting yourself at risk for adverse effects if the dose is higher than what you think you should be taking. Another good example of that is desiccated thyroid. And so instead of taking the lab-manufactured synthetic version that is highly controlled, highly regulated, in its purest form, you know exactly what dose you're getting. This is a dose in like micrograms, right? So it's tiny, tiny amounts. And so any error is going to be potentially have very negative effects on your health. And so that's another good example of a hormone where it's important to make sure that you have the regulated synthetic and approved version of it because the compounded or desiccated thyroid, again, has like a lot of variability and you can't be sure in terms of what even formulation or dose that you're getting. Yeah. And with the hormones, it's a good area to point out that you can have a regulated drug that is bioidentical. That's exactly the same as the one in your body. It doesn't mean it's synthetic and bad. With estrogen, for example, you can get estrogen, the same one in your body, but from a regulated source, or you can get it from unregulated source. So I know which one I'm going to choose. Well, exactly. Right. And then, I mean, you also have to remember that like most of the medications that we have are actually like found from nature. When you think of like an opioid, for example, natural, the opioid crisis is one of the biggest public health crises that we have right now. And opium is natural. And then like the synthetic things from that, what are very effective as pain medications, but also like not without side effects. Some of the deadliest substances in the world are natural, like ricin, arsenic, all these things come to mind where they're natural, they're found in nature, but they're extremely dangerous and extremely deadly. And so it's just important to remember that you need to have that level of regulation, that level of consistency to make sure that you know exactly what you're putting into your body and that you know whether it's going to be effective or not and whether there is true evidence behind it. One of my favorite quotes you're bringing to mind is the dose makes the poison, right? Absolutely. And so it's dangerous for like, you know, these concerns with natural products. It's dangerous on multiple fronts, right? Like sure, it might be harmless to you, but if you're taking it in place of what you should be, that's dangerous. If you're taking an unregulated amount and the the dose is not controlled, that's dangerous. Or it could simply just be poisonous to you because it is a dangerous substance in and of itself. And so it's important to be able to have these conversations with your doctor and making sure that you're using what is appropriate for your medical condition. Nothing unnecessarily. We never like to give people any sort of supplements or medications unnecessarily and to make sure you're taking the regulated form of it. 100%. As we talked about earlier, you're quite active on social media and fighting misinformation. This is an area where I'd love to see more people doing what you're doing. So I wanted to hear what keeps you going doing that because a lot of it's just on your own free time. It brings a lot of satisfaction to me because I get to educate the public. I would say the education piece is a lot easier than the advocacy piece, right? Because I do both on social media. So from the education piece standpoint, I love being able to use my knowledge and distill it down into a way that's understandable for people. And that hopefully is helpful for them to help them just make informed health decisions about themselves or their family. Because I think being informed about your health is just generally a very important thing. And a lot of times it's challenging to be able to navigate through the information, know where to look, know who to trust, know what's real, what's misinformation. So a lot of my health information stuff is based on using my knowledge, but also trying to debunk myths that are out there like we were just talking about. And so from that perspective, I think it's important for healthcare professionals to remember that we do have something to add to the conversation. And that from a general public standpoint, it's really important to have people who are credible and who are trustworthy to be able to cut through the noise of the misinformation. The more of us that are out there, the more we can make sure that the conversation is balanced in the favor of the truth and the evidence 
because right now we're really struggling with this infodemic where there are a lot of people out there who are not credentialed, who are not experts, who are loud and who are really making it challenging for non-medical people to be able to navigate through what they should listen to and what they should trust and what they shouldn't. And so from a position of expertise, I think it's really important to have more voices out there from the health education standpoint. One thing you said just made me think about the format of information because you mentioned that it can be hard to separate good for bad information. And yes, there are amazing websites out there that provide tons of in-depth information, but that might not be the format that people want. So these short videos and so on. So as a medical professional, you might think, oh, I'll just point them to my professional organization. That should do it. But there is a real need for information conveyed in a way that's a little bit more catchy, a little bit more bite-sized. Yeah, and digestible and understandable, right? Because going to like the CDC website, I love going to the CDC website. There's a lot of information there. It's a lot to digest. And it's a lot to digest by someone who doesn't have a medical background. And so I think, yeah, using social media in all its forms, so using videos or visuals or words like tweets are just in a much more digestible form. And I think a much more approachable form as well. And like we know that social media is a massive way that people consume information and in particular health information too. And so I think it's important to have those credible voices out there that are just, again, cutting through that noise of misinformation. The more of us there are, the more that credible information is going to get through. So for medical professionals who are maybe interested in trying to add their voice to this, but are not sure where to begin, do you have advice on just getting started? It's hard to say kind of where to start, but just make an account and just get out there and make sure that you have your credentials listed in your bio so that people know that you're trustworthy and just start with baby steps. Whatever your area of expertise is, start putting some things out there, some videos, some infographics, just to try to make sure that that information is getting out there. And as people recognize that you are someone who's credible, things will pick up and that information will get out there more readily. So is there anything more to add on the social media front? The health information side is one thing, but the advocacy side is a whole other beast. And that is the world that is really challenging to get into and challenging to navigate because there are more trolls on that side, admittedly, right? And so when we talk about things like COVID-19 advocacy, masking, vaccines, I'm a big proponent of maintaining a single payer public health care system. Things like that become a bit more challenging, advocating even just for reducing wait times, getting EMS back on the road, like things from a health system standpoint become more challenging because people have very strong opinions about it and are not often respectful in their dialogue when I am putting stuff out there. In anyone who is thinking about getting out there, because again, in the same vein as the health information piece, we need to have experts and credible people who are out there even advocating for the health system in the way that it needs to change and evolve. My advice for trolls is just be liberal about blocking them. Try not to read your comments. I still do a little bit because there are sometimes people that I can engage with where there is like true conversation that will happen and respectful dialogue that will happen. My rule is that I give them two tries. I will reply twice and that's it. And if I see that it's spiraling into anything that's aggressive or disrespectful, I shut the conversation down. I say, thank you. We're going to have to agree to disagree and have a good day sort of thing. If it's anyone at any point that is directly attacking me personally or anything about my identity personally, like my threshold to block them and report them is very low. And I think as you do it more, I'm not going to say it doesn't get to me because it does. But just remember that there's an army of us out there that are really just trying to do the right thing and advocate and you have people out there like me and other people too 
who will be there to support each other to try to just make sure that we're collaborating to get that information and advocacy out there. I found the same thing that really is helpful to have a team and, you know, I'm collaborating with those nerdy girls. We commiserate, I guess it is, over troll comments and give each other support. Finding allies can really make that a lot better. Mm -hmm. And even just getting advice from people that are going through it already, right? I mean, I can remember talking to a colleague of mine who's pretty active on Twitter and her and I often have conversations about how sometimes if you feel like it's getting really bad, just protect your tweets for a little while and kind of just, again, cut through the noise and have a reset and then unprotect them so you can kind of just have a blank slate again of those trolls kind of not coming after you so much for a little bit. Yeah, you definitely have to preserve your mental well-being, right? Yeah, for sure. So we're pretty much out of time here. Are there any last resources you wanted to share on the theme of medical information online and separating fact from fiction? Absolutely. So I mean, on the social media side, there's some really great pages out there. So Science Up First comes to mind. They're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, and they do an excellent job of getting evidence-based health information out there and really cutting through the noise and debunking misinformation. In the same vein, Timothy Caulfield is a great person to follow for that as well. And then there are lots, I mean, there's lots of great like COVID pages out there too on social media. But if we're thinking outside of social media, then even things like the Health Canada website, the CDC website, the WHO website, try to avoid things like when you're Google searching, right? Like make sure it's a credible website that's maybe from a university or from a national organization or an international organization when you're looking for information. Of course, you know, come follow me. I have lots of great information, health information on multiple platforms. And I mean, when in doubt, talk to your doctor. They should be always the first source of information about your personal health and preventative health. That's literally their job to look after you and to make sure that you're staying healthy. One more reason we need to work on that universal healthcare. Everyone actually has a doctor, right? Exactly. Making sure that everybody has access to it and making sure that everybody has a family doctor. That should be the most important priority from a healthcare standpoint is making sure that everybody has a family doctor to continue that preventative care so people aren't ending up in hospitals and getting sick. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me. 